your mentor for the next 40 minutes has probably had the most diverse and interesting career of anyone I've ever met. He's gone from launching some of the most successful bands in the world, like the Jonas Brothers, in his early music career, to working with Steve Jobs as part of the team that launched iTunes in Europe, taking it from zero to 500 million revenue in three years. And in more recent times, he's best known as the world-renowned chef and restaurateur responsible for ceviche, a business built on his passion for Peruvian food and culture, which at one point was the fastest growing restaurant group in the UK, with a turnover of more than £10 million. Martin shared some truly inspiring stories with me in today's episode, from having a hugely successful corporate career, to the ups and downs from his startup experience, which included scaling, restructuring, and eventually exiting ceviche. He shared some candid advice, including how to build a loyal team working towards the same goal, whether that's launching a singer-songwriter or a central London restaurant, the importance of diplomacy when you're driving change in a big organisation, and working with tough, uncompromising characters like he had to do at Apple and at Disney, and what it takes to turn your passion into a viable business that can attract both investors and, more importantly, customers. Despite his huge success, Martin is such a humble and lovely man, and I've had the privilege of getting to know him recently through our roles as board advisors at the New Accelerator for Good Unrest. Martin's upbringing saw his family flee civil unrest in Peru when he was 11, and has had a big part to play in why he's remained so grounded. It's also that background that fuels his passion for sustainability, the circular economy, and social enterprise, something we discuss further in our chat. So if you want to know what it takes to reach the top in a variety of competitive industries, whilst also sticking to your principles, you won't want to miss out on Martin's fantastic advice. So sit back, relax, and please enjoy my conversation with the incredibly inspiring Martin Allen Morales. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on The 40 Minute Mentor. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I thought as we always like to, we'd kick this off with a quick 30-second overview of your CV. Over to you. I started my working life working at the co-op, filling up stuffs or bins, working <laughs> in factories, worked cleaning floors in Leicestershire, where I grew up, after moving from Peru. So I worked in very menial jobs whilst I was studying. Then at university, I started my first business, a concerts and catering company. From there, after winning an award in marketing at university, after becoming a DJ, I started to work for record labels, first working with the Bonavista Social Club members in Cuba uh, for an independent label, then working for EMI and signing Katie Tunstall and working with Josh Stone, among others, Um, and then uh, being hired by Apple to help launch iTunes Europe and becoming head of PAN-EU for iTunes uh, for four years, for the first four years of its life. Um, I was then headhunted by Disney to launch High School Musical and Hannah Montana and work with artists Miley Cyrus and Jonas Brothers and Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato and run the music business, also work on their digital transformation and also help run franchises like um, High School Musical, Cross Media, Cross Platform in EMEA. And then in 2010, I left to start my own restaurants business, my own entrepreneurial journey. Uh, which saw me sell my house, uh, put everything I had into this uh, and go back to my roots, my Peruvian roots, and really try and launch Peruvian food and Peruvian culture in a way in this country. Uh, I did that with ceviche and Andina restaurants, 
with a beautiful team of 200 people with a lot of success through books that I wrote, through a YouTube channel and a theatre play and, uh, and a record label and an art gallery and a charity called Amantani that, uh, that we, we were part of as part of the journey of Savic and Andina. I left that in November, sold, and uh, in the last, uh, well, for 20 years, I've also been working for charities, social enterprises and purpose-led organisations uh, on the sharp end of, of social issues, but also environmental. And for the last year, I've been looking at how I can add value and, and really add impact for the rest of my life in that sector with a variety of companies. So I'm currently uh, focused on building a new collective that will work in the circular economy and support founders with funding and network and many other things so that they can be the new challenger brands of tomorrow. Um, I'm a non-exec at Big Issue Invest, Recovery Focus and a trustee at uh, Future Fit Foundation, as well as uh, being a trustee at uh, Charity Amantani and a patron at Musico Musica. So um, if that wasn't enough, um, I mentor quite a few people also in the social enterprise space. But the majority of my time, I spend taking care of my wife and my children. Wonderful. Thank you, Martin. Wow. I, I think of all the amazing leaders and entrepreneurs I've met, uh, yours is the most diverse career and the most, arguably the most interesting. So I, I can't wait to, to get into this. But I wanted to start at the beginning, uh, as we always like to, I think, understanding a bit about one's upbringing is, uh, is, is always a really interesting starting point for this sort of interview. So can you tell me a, a little bit about that? Because I know that your family was very influential, supportive of your career. I know your, your grandmother taught you a lot about sustainable farming and your parents had the creative and the analytical side. So do you mind telling our, our listeners a little bit about that and how that helped shape who you are in your career today? So my father was British came from a working class background in Leicester, but became an accountant by correspondent course. So he's a hard, work, hard working man. And, and he went to Peru, met my mum, who, who came from an indigenous background, came from uh, humility, um, humble beginnings, who had been sort of, you know, uh, taken, uh, left off in Lima, although she came from the mountains, to find a better life. She found my dad, they got married, they had my sister, then had, they had me. So, so I grew up with that duality of rural and urban, of privilege and poverty, of different races, coming from different races, a mixed race background. And I grew up, you know, enjoying exquisite food in Lima and in the Andes, exquisite music, um, having the benefit of living in, in a coastal city of Lima. So I enjoyed the sea and I, I had that connection with nature as a very young kid, being a surfer. But I also loved the mountains and felt them, felt them as, as, you, know, as you feel ancestors sometimes. Mm. Um, so, I, so that connection with mountains and with nature uh, that grows on them, with agriculture through my grandmother, were all very important. So I, I grew up in this very sort of world of paradox in Peru that also had beauty within some of the people and some of the way I was treated and the love that I received, but also cruelty because of the violence that surrounded us. Peru was going through a civil war and was going through, through terrorism. And, and that was just knocking at the door quite often through family members who, who were killed or through people that we knew who were kidnapped. And so it was, it, there was this other paradox in terms of safety that I grew up with uh, or lack of it. And uh, so, so all of that came to a head when I was 11 to a moment of extreme change uh, when my father decided to leave Peru without my mother, whom had uh, left us for another man, 
uh, and decided to leave us and go to Britain, back to his country, back to a country I knew very little about, but back to a place where I, I, I had heard would be safer for us. Uh, and safety, as you know, as a child, is probably the paramount thing that you mm. think about. One doesn't worry or think about how you'll miss food and culture and music and the sea and the mountains and, and love and, and affection and, and touch, hugs, kisses, all those things that Peruvians are well known for, which I didn't find when I arrived here. Yeah. Um, I found uh, a cold country, a country that was trying to find itself, a country in the mid-80s that Thatcher had created a great capitalist system for, to, for some to prosper, but others who were trampled on and who were really left behind, particularly working class people, particularly people that had come from old industries that were now going to get a real big shakeup. Mm-hmm. And that was the mining industry. The energy system in the UK relied on coal mining. And I landed uh, in a little town called Coalville in Leicestershire, which was, it was a mining town. And mm. Thatcher had closed all the mines. So there was 80% unemployment. The National Front were very big in that town. And I was racially abused like crazy for the first year at age of 11. Okay. So that was a little bit of my upbringing till mm. about the age of 11 or 12. Wow, what a story. I mean, it, it, it's so many things that were resonating with me just in terms of my um, my father moved a lot earlier than you, but uh, in, in the 50s moved over from India with his family and uh, into to Birmingham. And, and when they, they were sort of, there was a petition put up on the road when they tried to move in, they were chased out of parks and sad that sort of 30 odd years on that was still happening uh, to you. And I, I know that I know that that sort of left a profound effect on him and clearly you, but you clearly sort of survived that period and, and, and perhaps maybe were stronger for it. And, and you've gone on to have this incredible career and, and clearly that some of those passions that you, you picked up from your early years around music and food, you know, have been a thread throughout your career. And particularly uh, if we start maybe at, at music, because I know you, you know, you, you mentioned, and I, I, I was reading about this earlier, this fantastic combination of DJing and, and food uh, at university. I think we both went to university in Leeds. So, but that ended up ultimately sort of, you ended up at EMI which is a very famous record label. And, and you've helped launch some incredible careers. Uh, you mentioned Katie Tunstall. I know you worked with the likes of Joss Stone and James Blunt. So many of the people listening here will be, I'm sure, as I am, huge fans of music, but you only ever hear the end result. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what it actually takes to uh, take an artist from you know, being a talented singer to that kind of global superstar that we all end up enjoying watching and, and seeing? I'd love to hear a bit about that. And, and if, you, if you're allowed to say if you had any particular favourite artists that you launched over the years. I guess I've always had the empathy to kind of put myself in other people's shoes, understand how they absorb, how they, how they perceive and also how they consume certain mm. things. Maybe not politics, but certainly music and certainly products in different ways. I, I have a very keen eye. I guess it comes from an eye of living under siege when you live under siege, you, all your senses are very heightened. So that's why my taste buds and my touch and my, and my eyesight is very sharp. And that's why I love great flavors and I love great music and, and I, can, I can break it down and, and understand its complexity. And that's why I enjoy uh, art direction, whether it's album covers, 
making books or, or interiors that I did for our restaurants. And so I brought all that and I had some of that uh, or the foundations of that when I started to really, you know, absorb music myself as, as an escape to the hardship and loneliness I was going through in Leicestershire. So I started to record collect and I started to think there's more to this world than British pop music and American pop music. And, and, and I started to do my own investigation into classical music, into Motown, into, uh, into then, you know, the current nascent house music and certainly into West African music, Cuban, uh, Indian music, uh, music from around the world. And as you know, it's called world music. It's, it's bracketed in that ghetto. Uh, which loses its individuality, but that's the Western way of calling it. So I was a big world music fan, became a world music DJ, and, and that was the passion for me was culture, understanding individual people and their creativity, but also culture. And so that's why I became a DJ and a, and a, and a concert promoter, and then I ended up working for EMI. Uh, I worked for EMI, by the way, firstly running a record label called Outcast. And Outcast had a, an artist called Nitin Sawney. Oh, yes. Uh, and Outcast was the leading uh, record label that launched British Asian uh, music. So I had the, the privilege to work with Bad Marsha Shree and with, with a few other producers. But I also sort of said to my boss, look, we have to spread this out. We have to make this broader into mm. world music, not just British Asian, because, you know, we need, we need a broader scope. So I signed a band called Oiva Voy. Uh, and uh, worked with them and developed them and introduced them to a singer called Katie Tunstall. So that album, Laughter Through Tears, was the first album I fully executive produced and A&R'd, and it was an absolute treasure and a joy, and they were wonderful to work with mm. as a band, uh, and Katie was, was a dream to work with. And uh, I guess then, you know, what does it take? Going back to your original question, I think... It was important for me to just explain the thought process of why yeah. I got to where I was uh, and to be able to, I guess, be in a position to create music, uh, set, uh, create the space and, and organize the, the structure for an artist like Katie Tunstall to do what she needed to do. But Katie, like James, who we did not sign, but who I was, who, who I was close to signing, <laughs> James Blunt, um, but who I put on in an acoustic night and who I got to know. But Katie really came to us. I sort of spotted her from a, from a bunch of CDs that were demos that she'd sent, uh, her manager had sent, and that I heard uh, one night in my office whilst listening to hundreds of, of CDs and, and tracks by, by all kinds of artists some of which I passed on, which, which went on to be very successful, <laughs> uh, and some of which uh, I, I said, you know, I'd like to speak to them and I'd like to work with them. James Blunt, uh, The Darkness, uh, Katie Tunstall at the time were, were just right. a few. But we worked with Katie and I really, yeah, uh, she came to us with 120 songs already written or co-written. Wow. So there was a treasure trove to choose from. There was three or four albums we could have created from that but, but Katie and I carefully selected the tracks with her manager of course Simon Banks and um, and it was a beautiful experience many people in the industry thought she was not right she she would never make it but I could see I could see uh, a person that's committed to her artistry and I could see what I called an unstoppable train and I said to my my bosses in the record label I said um, 
she's going to make it whatever happens. She might be a cult artist or she might be a mainstream artist, but she's going to be an artist and she's going to make a living and she's going to, you know, take people with her that will make a living from what she does uh, and the pureness of her creativity and her artistry. So it was an absolute honor to work with her. Mm, I had a fantastic time to work with this sensitive, caring uh, human being that had herself been through so many challenges in life, so many complications, and who who had had a talent and a voice, as well as songwriting talent, to put her heart and soul out there. And I guess what it takes is to build a team around that person, to spot the talent and the potential in someone, which I've been privileged enough to do, not just with music artists, but with actors, with chefs, with executives throughout my life. Mm. But to build a team around that person, a team that has one mission and one authentic way of communicating with each other, a team that's together and that creates something so beautiful that it's undeniable, that has no switch-offs, that can kind of progress and move forward and convince anyone just through its own artistry. And it's, it's not a, a selfish endeavor. You have to consider many different people and you have to consider an audience. Yeah. So even when we'd finished recording the album with Katie, we hadn't finished mixing it. So we had to, I found a, a, a mixer that had just worked with a band called Keen. And, oh, wow. and he kind of worked on the tracks to make them even more exciting and accessible but retain some of that beauty and that edge that Katie had. So um, those are some of the things that, that it yeah. takes to, to launch an artist. Incredible. And you went on to become head of Pan Europe at iTunes. Uh, I know you worked alongside Steve Jobs. What an incredible experience that must have been. And, and you grew revenues from zero to half a billion pounds, I think, or dollars in, in, that, uh, in that time frame. So incredible thing to be a part of. And, um, it would be great to understand a little bit about how you achieved that success and, and, and also what challenges you overcame on that, that journey over those years at iTunes. So, so I was hired as a, as to be part of a team of six or five, I think, five, five, a team of five. And, and I did not single-handedly create those kind of revenues. We had an incredible product that Steve and the team in Cupertino created and handed to us. But independently and sort of autonomously, we worked in Europe to create those kinds of sales. I guess my, the bit of my, my work was in trying to understand what those different markets, those different countries wanted from their music provider. And, and we were one of the first music providers uh, that was a tech platform uh, in Europe. We had a lot of challenges from record labels thinking because they had had the bad experience and I was one of them. And they had had the bad experience of of piracy through Napster and through Pirate Bay. Uh, and so they were very wary about new digital technologies coming in and, uh, and creating market share and cannibalizing their physical products, their CDs, their cassettes, and their vinyl. So we had to overcome those. Um, it wasn't easy. Uh, record labels weren't easy to sign up, even major record labels. They saw us as a threat. And so I became the enemy as, as after being within the record industry, I became the enemy because wow. I was then in a tech platform and working in technology. Um, I got that role because, by the way, because I, I was also a digital marketeer. Wow. Uh, I was one of the first in the music industry. And the music industry was the first to market uh, music, products, content digitally before, before the world of TV and film and yeah. literature and others started to market their products. 
music. Mm. We were the pioneers in that way of how to digital market products. But yeah, it was a, it was a phenomenal journey where, you know, I sort of tried to understand as much as I could how someone in Holland could enjoy classical music or what they wanted from their blues or from their, their drum and bass or their garage or their, or their punk rock or someone in Spain or someone in Italy or someone in France. So that was, those are some of the challenges that I had and some of the, some of the work that I had to do to try and um, foretell what they might like to be able to position the iTunes stores in the right way for, that, for when they visited uh, and they, we could capture their, their wants and likes and, um, and what they wanted to buy. And I guess it must be fantastic to combine that that passion for music with a with a with a, with business, and 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 that led to ultimately joining the board of Walt Disney Music Group. And I know again you saw a fantastic period of time there, growing revenues, launching High School Musical, Miley Cyrus, Jonas Brothers, a whole host of very famous names. What were your standout moments from that part of your career? And what advice would you have for those listening to this who may be trying and possibly failing to make a an impression? Or, or implement change in a big corporate beast like a Disney? Well, Disney was very siloed and very, the lines of businesses from games to consumer products, parks and resorts, TV, film, had always worked quite uh, independently. But there was, there was a guy with a, with a very strong vision. His name was Rich Ross. He went on to be president of the studio as well as Disney Channel previous to that and then went on to work at Discovery. And he wanted to really create uh, franchises out of TV properties. And his vision was one for High School Musical to become a global franchise and for all aspects of Disney to be involved in it. I bought into that vision. I understood that vision. He was a tough guy, but he could understand how we could come together. I got into franchise management, therefore, with a very diplomatic hat. I've known as I'm known as being a diplomat, a person that brings teams together that can talk and relate to some of the strongest, most influential and biggest egos, you could say as well, <laughs> and sort of say, look, if you just break down your barriers a little bit, if you just are, are not quite so uh, protective over, over your domain, but just loosen up a bit and, and think of the bigger picture, you will earn more revenues yourself and your team and your, your business uh, and you'll get more credibility and, and actually you'll we'll have a lot of fun doing it, you know, being cohesively working with the, with the big uh, Disney family rather than your own, um, mm. your own island. So it was a way of, <laughs> of creating almost like a European <laughs> Union and taking Britain into it. Ironic, really, but, um, <laughs> but that's what we did. And we did that across 27 countries. And so working in the franchise management team for High School Musical was, was a real highlight it was tough because, as I said, there were some very tough and protective people, but, but they all wanted change and they all wanted this to succeed. And so we customized uh, and we localized product. We worked on the timings of, of the TV shows and the airings of the, of the films and the, the launches of the different products in the different categories across all the territories. So all of that work was incredibly challenging, incredibly strategic. There's a lot of micromanagement that had to go on to make sure the timing was precise. And it was, yeah, it was a real privilege to be part of that. In my own business within Disney, I ran the music business as well as working with franchise management. I ran the music business. And that in itself brought a lot of joy because not only did we work with 
with big known franchises like High School Musical and, and Hannah Montana. But then we were able to work with individual artists and I love working with talent. So I was lucky enough to work with Miley and with Jonas Brothers and others and bring them to the UK and create their own careers with their own music, uh, not mm. just through a property that might be a film or a TV show. So, so yeah, have wonderful moments, you know, firstly watching, bringing Jonas Brothers to yeah. a little restaurant in London when no one knew them and we had to queue up outside to or a year later, you know, closing Oxford Street for Miley Cyrus so she could go shopping at Topshop. And what an experience. <laughs> and then, you know, watching them perform in Madrid or in Turin or in the O2 and, and smashing box office records with Miley's tour was just, just phenomenal. Yeah. But so was, so was identifying a little song by a band called Plain White Tees, a song called Hey Do Delilah and saying to my US team, you know, no one knows about this song, but I think it's a hit. So I'm going to take it to Radio 1 and Radio 2 and I'm going to convince you know, Jeff Smith and George Ogatudis that these are, these are hits. And I pitched those and it became number one. In fact, it became number one across Europe. And that's probably the proudest number one I've had alongside the, the, the hit albums we had with High School Musical and, and Miley Cyrus and others. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was a lot. What a journey. Oh. Yeah, it certainly yeah. sounds it. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, amazing. Can I ask, do you have a, is there a favourite artist there that you worked with? Was there anything that stood out particularly and why? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, the boys, the Jonas Brothers boys, Kevin Jonas Sr., their father, always instilled a sense of discipline, respect um, and care towards those they worked with. So they were, they were not only charming, but they were also respectful, hardworking. Mm. And, and they were young, you know, so... I really admired them. Um, mm. And I don't, I don't take anything away from others because it's super challenging yeah. being a young person and being in the spotlight and having to do the work that we had to do. So I don't take anything away from Miley and, and Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez, but, but the boys were, were incredible. Um, mm. Their attitude was, was second to none. So I really enjoyed working with them. But I also enjoyed, you know, as I said, on a personal level, I had a great relationship with Kate, Katie Tunstall. Uh, we're mm. still friends from afar. And I, and I still, you know, some of the biggest smiles come to me when I hear some of the songs from her first album. But, but I've had a great experience with all the artists I've worked with, frankly. Yeah. I really like the point around diplomacy you made. I think there's, you know, especially in some of these big American corporations, that there, there are some aggressive and challenging stakeholders. And I think for anyone listening to this, there is something to be said for that diplomatic approach in, and, and stakeholder management. And it's clearly something you're, you're an expert at and have, have achieved so much as a result. Um, but I wanted to move on to probably the most important part of this chat for me is, is around your shift from music to menus. Uh, and in 2011 when you uh, launched your own award-winning sustainability-focused restaurant, uh, starting with Ceviche and then Andina. And I know this specialised in your, your passion for Peruvian cuisine and culture. Um, so what inspired you to make that leap from, from turning your love of food um, into a career? Well, I've always followed passion, always followed my, my passions, my interests, always thought, what can I give this world that, that is is fun, it's beautiful. Yes, I chased um, career progression and, you know, maybe even fame or, or, or you know, peer, peer recognition. But in a way, I'd, I'd achieved so much, but felt like 
so unrewarded by it, uh, felt very disenfranchised by by by, it, by that career ladder and what what society was saying. This is the way you should do things. And although I loved my time at Disney, I, I sort of felt there was a huge huge amount of waste in terms of environmental, in terms of uh, social um, justice that we were not addressing. Um, not that you can, but certainly the waste in terms of the, the consumer products that was happening there. So there was a lot of frustration from my behalf. And, and this is from someone that has also been working for charities and social enterprises for many, many years. So I wanted to bring that into something that I was truly passionate about. And it, it really, you know, from those first few years of working uh, with that concert company that I had when I was a student at Leeds, where we presented catering and food from around the world, as well as music from around the world, it, it frustrated me that people didn't know about the country of my birth enough, mm. about Peru. Stereotypes of cultures have always frustrated me, especially how, how marketeers uh, adopt them and adapt them and exploit them. And it, uh, it repulses me sometimes. Uh, and our Latin culture is, is, you know, Latin is a whole series of continents, not just, not just a country. And so to put everything into that one bracket frustrated me. And Peru within that was not known at all. What the mm. people knew about Peru was Machu Picchu and, and llamas. And that was it. So I, I knew there was much more to this, having grown up in Peru and having kept in touch with my family and friends in Peru. And so there was an urgent need from my behalf to kind of do something about it, create thinking and frustration and passion into action. And I also thought that if I don't do this with Peruvian food, I, I could see a wave, not only in the way we were eating in, in the UK and in other places, we were interested in other cuisines, but also in the beauty of Peruvian food because it was so powerful. It is so powerful. Mm. And I could, see, I could see that coming at some point. And I wanted to make sure that I was at the forefront of uh, writing the script for it, writing the truth about it in a respectful, accessible, enjoyable, fun, stylish way, uh, not in a stereotyped way, mm. not in an exploitative way, not saying, you know, Latin people are just, you know, wear bikinis and, and dance salsa all the time, but in a cultured, fun, you know, as I said, exciting way that is respectful to our traditions um, and respectful to, to our technology and, 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 and our future. So I saw it as a mission more than anything, as well as my own passion for cooking and for, for art and design and, and, uh, and folk art from Peru. So I put all those things into the mix and started very humbly with a supper club and a pop-up restaurant and then building the team and failing several times in terms of fundraising and, and failing a couple of times in terms of the first team that I built pre-opening our first restaurant and ultimately selling my house to put wow. that money on the line to attract other investors to say, look, I'm willing to go the full mile because I believe in this and I believe it's a measured risk because by then, after a year of supper clubs and pop-up restaurants and I guess R&D, I built a fan base because I'm mm. building teams and building small movements. And this was going to be the biggest movement I'd ever built. 
in a way yeah. that kick-started single-handedly. Fantastic. And what a what a big call. But uh, I mean, as somebody that set up my own business at 25, I'm, I'm always in favor of the taking those calculated risks. And uh, it clearly did pay off. I am, uh, I, I mentioned this to you, but uh, my wife and I are huge, we're huge fans of ceviche. And we, we've had many a date night in Soho. And I love the not only the food, but the customer service, the vibe, the music. It's just the sort of place that we, as a couple, just love to spend time. But I know it's not always easy and and, uh, and, and the restaurant business is notoriously difficult, but you created this fantastic uh, business. I know it reached over 10 million turnovers and, and you brought your culture to, you know, very much the forefront of um, the UK. So, it can't all have been plain sailing. So do you mind just giving us some of the biggest challenges you faced over that eight-year period? And, and how did you overcome them? You know, I was inspired by my grandmother, who was a cooperative farmer, who was a, uh, a cooperative leader, uh, organic farming leader, who taught me about sustainability and taught me about zero-waste cooking before it was fashionable. So I grew up with those fundamentals, and I just wanted to bring those into this company and create the ethos around that. Our, um, our motto was, here we cook with love, aquí se cocina con cariño, which didn't spread just into cooking, but into everything that we did. I've always thought um, that love is something that we could talk more about and open our hearts more to create better relationships and better honesty and transparency. And that ethos was carried by all our team. And it was, it was beautiful in the way it, it came together and we created a family of team members. The, the beginning was incredibly challenging because Peruvian food did not exist. People didn't know how to spell Peru, let alone ceviche, let alone pronounce ceviche. People didn't know what a pisco sour was. And so oh. we had to create and write the language for it all. It was a blank canvas. I strategically thought about how to, um, how to exclude certain things and include certain things, like aji amarillo is amarillo chili but most, you know, it had never gone out of Peru. Yeah, yeah. So I, I made the conscious decision of not calling it aji amarillo, but calling it amarillo chili. So right. that it could be better understood and quicker mm. understood, but retain its authenticity and included it in the dish. So I, I made all kinds of decisions around how to create a culture and how to launch a culture in a way and a language for that culture which was incredibly challenging, but there were people along the way that helped in branding, in marketing, and helped us innovate and launch and be pioneers. And the way we did it was also unique. As you said, you enjoyed the music as well. Mm. And the fact that he had a bar and the fact that the decor was pretty cool. You might not understood it all because it wasn't full of pictures of Machu Picchu, but you thought this is cool and this is authentic. And that's what I wanted to do, make sure people had that authentic experience without really knowing why it's authentic and it and it worked we had a very challenging growth path but it was an organic growth which was quite explosive we were one of the mm -hmm. fastest growing restaurant businesses in the uk and, and won many awards in sustainability in uh, in food in design and creativity but brexit really the vote a few years ago really started to evolve and change things mm -hmm. it was at that point after about six or seven years where I thought, fabulous. I've got this organization, this company that we've been very transparent about the way we operated, created a great culture. 
legally structured around one entity, very clean, very neat, very transparent, as I said. And I wanted to, rather than, than change it and evolve it and sell it and you know, go off into the sunset with millions, I found that quite selfish. I thought that this could carry on in a better way so that employees could be rewarded for what they've done and team members could be even more excited about carrying on the mission in future. So I, I wanted to turn it into a cooperative and also wanted to start a foundation because by then I'd met some fantastic high net worths and organizations. And having had a, a charity within ours, our organization as well, I thought we could do so much more. We could have, have, have much more social and environmental impact than we had done on our own. So I was just at the point of getting cooking the sort of company to be able to, to do that and transform us to be that. And then the Brexit vote arrived. The Brexit vote brought with it increased costs, which put a lot of pressure, but also decreased sales. And I'm not just a Mona and a Ramona and looking for excuses. We have you know, actual factual evidence about this. And we saw our sales decrease as and when there was more of the rhetoric of, you know, just buy British, discount and, and don't enjoy and don't buy foreign. You know, these are broad strokes which brought undertones of racism into the way we were consuming and perceiving things. Yeah. Uh, and that not only stifled anyone that had something that was from another country, whether it's Ethiopian, Peruvian or Nigerian, but it also stifled innovation. So conservatism with a lowercase c started to permeate in, in our buying decisions in the way we behaved. And we started to contract with that, with that idea of let's close our borders. So that really affected us. And it kind of affected me as well as a person who'd come from, who has a dual nationality. Well, I'm, legally, I'm just British, but has culturally uh, from two different places, who passionately loves the UK and Britain but who, who has felt, you know, felt this, this really went against my values and my, my belief system. So, so it affected sales. Yeah, uh, such a shame. My, in my career, I had to become not just a growth expert and, and a team builder, but also a turnaround expert, which thanks to some fantastic people on our team, I was able to do, and then we were able to restructure, and I was able to leave the company in good hands with my number two and a new set of investors and uh, with, with the team fully employed moving forward. So that's, mm. that was really important for me. Definitely. Well, what a journey. And, uh, and I think there's, there's so much you can be proud of in, in that, but uh, not without challenges, which I guess is part of the entrepreneurial and also dealing with things completely out of your control, which I guess we're all seeing right now in terms of the pandemic and, and many businesses are suffering as a result. But um, yeah, I, I think what you achieved has been, uh, has been unbelievable. And, and I know you've gone on to do some fascinating things over the last sort of year or so since you, since you left uh, Ceviche or since you exited Ceviche. So um, I know a number of organizations you're a part of uh, focus on sustainability, the circular economy, creating social good, all things that I know you're very passionate about and I share that. It'd be good just to understand a bit about, you know, why it is you're particularly passionate about that. And, and, and I guess what made you get involved with these sorts of organizations? As I said, they are the result of lived experience. And, you know, when you have lived experience uh, and challenges that personally affect you, you can't just let them lie. They, you mm -hmm. have to change the way 
people act and the way people think and the way society is going. You have to do it in a small way or a big way. And I, frankly, you know, changing something that happens in my local neighborhood is, is as important as trying to change a bigger problem like, like poverty alleviation or, or homelessness. So I, I, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, to Big Issue Invest, to, to Recovery Focus, to uh, Future Fit Foundation, to Impact Hub, to many other organizations that I'm working with to give me the opportunity to add that change I want to see and to join their teams in, in, in proactively, you know, changing things that, uh, that affect us all and particularly affect vulnerable community and vulnerable people. We are all vulnerable. We are all just, you know, skin and bones and vulnerability can be poked and prodded and, and broken anytime. And this pandemic has shown that. So I hope that others who who are the tough guys in this world and the brutes and the bullies have also had their vulnerabilities shuffled so that mm-hmm. they can you know, think of others and be selfless in what they do. But I do this because I want to live a selfless life. I follow my own spirituality uh, and a variety of religions that, that, I, I, that are important to me. And I try to, to do what I can whilst I'm here. I want to leave a legacy. I think I've done that a little bit in the books and the and the, and the meals that I've served and things like that, but also in the way I've brought smiles and happiness and, and helped people throughout their lives or at particular moments of their lives. And that's because I have been blessed uh, to have received that kindness from others as well. Uh, and I never forget that I could have, my mother could have not married my English father and given us that opportunity of education, that I could have been born just in the middle of the Andes in a little straw hut mm. with no access to education or even running water. And I could be still there right now. So I never forget that. And yeah, that's absolutely. I think uh, always keeping in mind that your roots and, 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 and upbringing is, is super important. And, and I think one thing that's so clear from your leadership and the, and the success you've had is that you, you, you do live a purpose-driven life. And I think you see a lot of companies, snappy marketing slogans out there about purpose-driven. But for you and those listening to this who, who really want their companies to be more purpose-led and, and live and breathe it throughout their organization, are there any, have you got any advice for them given your success of, being able, of making that happen? Yeah, dig deep. Leave no stone unturned in your conscience, you know, because it will come back. You know, don't lie to yourself. Be really honest and, and transparent with yourself. Look at your fears and show your vulnerability to your kids, to your team members. Uh, show your doubts to try and find the best way forward, honestly, that you can. And then the marketing slogans will come. <laughs> yeah, <it's so> true. <laughs> and the mottos will just come. Life's too short to be, to be copying others. Mm. Uh, life's about listening to what, what's deep within you in your heart. So, you know, that's, that's, I think that's the best way to live, the most comfortable way to live. Even if, you know, because we're all going to have horrendous yeah. challenges throughout our lives. We're going to die and friends around us and family are going to die and we're going to lose our eyesight and hearing and we're going <laughs> to grow true. older and we're going to get run over and we're going to have diseases. So, you know, we've got to just go through that with integrity and dignity and, 
and compassion for others because it's going to come to us individually and we're going to need help. So, that's uh, wonderful advice and and just before we get to our wrap-up questions I, I think another thing you're particularly passionate about is is sustainability um, and I'm sure there are people listening to this that that want to live a more sustainable life are there any changes be it quick ones or, or relatively easy ones that you think anyone listening to this can start to do to, to try and make that a reality so my work in the last 12 months has particularly focused on on changing the way we consume. Uh, I am utterly frustrated about how in our developed countries we recklessly consume things, um, physical things, uh, food products, fashion, home products, beauty products, etc. Because that affects people in vulnerable places, that affects our environment, mm. that can create, not always, can create uh, exploitation of workers in in Leicester as much as in Bangladesh. So I would just desperately ask you to consider what you're buying, to, to research, to really be conscious of who you're buying from and what the product represents and where it comes from and how it's made, to question it, to go out on the streets in action and protest, to write to those companies, to not buy them, to really support those who are creating sustainable products and, mm. and services to really research and change your habits. Why should you buy a brand new car when you can rent one and share one? Why should you buy a packet of crisps if it's made out of polluting product uh, packaging? Mm. Why should you? Why could you? Can you do without? Can you put a carrot in your pocket? Can you make your own crisps? Can you buy a really big bag of crisps and put it into smaller containers that you can carry around? Mm. Look at the way you're going about your life because those things that you are consuming affects others. And I'm mm. passionate about that because I've kind of always worked a little bit in this consumption sphere because we're always going to have to consume something, yeah. uh, particularly the basics, whether it's a roof over our head, whether it's food through our mouth, whether it's some kind of comfort. And in mm. our developed country world in our developed countries we have we have so many options and so many comforts we've got to respect and appreciate those pandemic has limited those and has began to to to, to put a spotlight on how we can do that better so i that's the work that i'm doing right now in circularity in creating partnerships with new startups and scale-ups that are using circular methods rather than the, the linear take make waste is all about that mm, wonderful thank you martin uh, some some great great advice there for anyone listening and finally and i've really enjoyed our chat i, I could easily talk to you for hours more but uh, we're, we're, we're sadly time is is coming to an end but um i just wanted to do our usual wrap-up questions this is called the 40 minute mentor so i must ask you about mentorship do you have a mentor or mentors yourself and how have they helped your career journey yeah, well, there's always been, I've had for the last 20 years, a very wise old man that helps me with business planning, but also helps me with life. His name is Nick Elwin. He's a wonderful man who's a family friend. He's like an uncle to me and who encourages me and, and has seen me through highs and lows. And his, his encouragement and his mentoring in terms of business has always been very straightforward, practical, but he's also, you know, 
an environmentalist. So, mm. so it's great to have him as an ally and someone to call upon. And then through the different industries that I've worked in, I've had a variety of mentors, particularly in the food industry. I've been fortunate enough to be welcomed by people who I admired. And I approached them with, with respect and appreciation for what they did, first of all. And that's how you should approach a possible mentor. Mm. Uh, but I also asked them for help. Mm. I didn't take up too much of their time. And I was quite specific in what I was asking. So Gillian McLean, uh, Nuno Mendes, even Russell Norman from Polpo, and many, many, many others, Jean-Michel Aurier, you know, really influential mentors, as well as mm. Raquel de Oliveira, who was my number two, is now the CEO of a new company that's taken over our, our brand. All of these people I consider as mentors, people I've learned from, people I admire, and people I appreciate and, and are very grateful for. Wonderful. And, and, and Martin, the next sort of 12 months for you, what do they look like uh, from a personal and business perspective? I hope to continue with the trustee and the non-exec roles that I'm doing, but I also hope to be part of, of an organization that appreciates what I have to give, uh, whether that's the organization that I'm, I'm launching now or whether that's a, a different organization. But I hope that whatever happens, I can build teams be creative, uh, transform the project that we're working on in this extremely volatile environment and work with people that have purpose and that are authentic and that ultimately change other people's lives for the better. Mm, wonderful. And, and final question, Martin, for any listeners thinking about making a big career move at this point, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? I think that this is such a challenging environment where so many people are losing their jobs, where companies are desperately struggling to survive and organizations, also charities and social enterprises, that you have to evolve. This is the time to transform, as painful as it is. The shell must break before the bird must fly is something that I started to think about at least a couple of years ago. And I've been through a few of those broken shells throughout my life in a way I'm a transformation expert because I've had to do it on myself several times and moved from different industries but look at fear in the face be brave uh, ask for help be curious uh, sense where the market is going feel where the market market is going think ahead think in opposites and be grateful for what you have around you because it's uh, it's always changing these dark clouds these challenges they come and go just as much as your good health and the laughter that we might have at any moment thank you martin what a, a, an inspiring way to end this uh, episode thank you so much for giving us your time and being such a fantastic 40 minute mentor everyone at jbm wishes you the very best for the year ahead and i look forward to hopefully catching up in person maybe over a pisco sour or two uh, before too long thank you very much thank you very much james cheers martin I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.